One of the things I've really enjoyed about our summers here at Fort Gary is the, the sermon series that we have done, which often touch on different stories, different characters, and then we hear different voices from the congregation speaking to those stories and characters. And this summer we've been walking through parables of Jesus and learning from them. And we've heard from some really diverse voices here in the congregation. I love that. And as usual, I get the last word. How's that? So this Sunday is the last in our series on the parables of Jesus. And this morning's parable is called the parable of the two sons. Last week, we heard from Matt as he challenged us with the parable of the unforgiving servant in which we were reminded to be people of mercy because we have received mercy and that our forgiveness is tied up in the way that we forgive others and that forgiveness lies at the heart of the gospel message that we live and proclaim. This morning's parable, this parable of the two sons, continues on on this theme of forgiveness and mercy. But rather than being about the forgiveness of others, it's about recognizing our own need for forgiveness from God. The word that we use for that often is called repentance. Acknowledging our brokenness, our sinfulness, our distance from God, and coming and turning back to God and understanding what it means to be in relationship with him. The passage that we read this morning includes more than just the parable itself. It includes the context that we find this parable in. And so we heard a little bit about Jesus being in the temple with the Pharisees and priests and talking to them, and then he tells this story to illustrate his point. In this story, we have these two sons, one who does what he's asked and one who does not. And yet it doesn't seem at the beginning of, this, of each of those conversations with those sons that they are going to do what we think that they're going to do. Have you ever been in this situation where someone has said that they were going to do something for you and then they just never actually followed through on it? Have you, have you been in that situation? I'm pretty sure I've let a few people down when I said, you know, oh, oh, I'll give you a call. And then, and then that call never came. And you're wondering, why didn't the pastor call me back? <sighs> There's this thing about me getting old and the holes in my brain that just things fall into. And, then, and so often, I, uh, not, oh, hopefully not too often, I've said things like, oh, I'll give you a call later this week or I'll send you an email. And then you're like, where's, where's the email? Where's the call? And thankfully, thankfully, many of you are gracious and kind enough to give me a call or send me an email and say, hey, you said, and then, oh, right, I'm so sorry. And we get back to it. Um, just this past uh, couple of weeks, uh, we had some work that needed to be done on our home. Our home, if you don't know, is over 100 years old, and there's always work that needs to be done on it. And most of the time, I do that work to the best of my own ability. But I will say there are some things that I just don't know how to do or I'm just not capable of doing. 
And one of those things happened this summer. And so we, we looked for a contractor, someone to come and do the work that needed to be done. He came, gave us an estimate. We told him what needed to be done. He said, I can do it for this much money. And we said, all right, let's go. Let's do it. And so this, over the last few weeks, he was at our home doing this work. And he got to about 90% of the way through the job. And then he said, okay, I'm done. See ya. And he left. Just like that. And Kathy and I said, what do you mean you're done? This was the work that needed to be done. And yeah, you did most of it. And it seems to be a pretty good job. But, but what about the rest? I can't do that. I'm not able to do that. That's why we called you. And so we were left going, well, if we had known that you weren't actually going to do all of the work that we asked you to do, we never would have hired you in the first place because we didn't need somebody to do part of the job. We needed somebody to do the whole thing. Needless to say, God continues to work on me and his spirit is at work in my heart, dealing with the frustration and the the feelings that come up, anger and such, when things don't go according to plan. But isn't this the case? When someone says, yeah, I'm going to do something, and then they don't do it? I was so tempted to use illustrations with my children this morning. But I promise not to tell you that I have children that mirror the two sons in this story. Oh, did I? Oh. I think many of you have similar situations. Or you yourself know that you are one of those children. The one who says, no, I won't. I'm not going to do it. It's not fair. It's not my... Somebody else can do it. And then later rethinks and re and changes their mind and grudgingly or happily goes and actually does what has been asked of them. And some of you, the kid that said, oh yeah, okay, yes, yeah, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll get to it, I promise, yes. And the parents wait and wait and wait and remind and wait and remind again and remind with stronger terms and it still doesn't get done. So many of us have had this experience in our lives. But this is a story that so many of us can relate to, right? And that's what Jesus is doing here. In the parables, he uses situations that people can relate to to point to deeper questions, deeper issues about what's going on in the life of faith and what God asks of his people So here we read in Matthew 21, verses 28 to 30, this story. What do you think? He asks of the religious leaders. A man has two sons, and he went to the first one and said, Son, I want you to go work in the vineyard today. And he goes, I won't. But later he changes his mind and he goes. The father went to the second son and said the same thing. And that son said, I'll go. But he doesn't go. In this story, this parable that Jesus is telling, it's helpful for us to understand the context of what, where we find this story. This is Matthew chapter 21. 
Those of you who have memorized what happens in every chapter of the Gospel of Matthew are right with me on this, right? Well, here we go. For the rest of you, don't worry. We'll catch up together. In Matthew 21, it starts out with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem just before the Passover with his disciples and the people proclaim him, Hosanna, the son of David. Essentially, what is happening in this moment in the Gospel of Matthew is the proclamation that Jesus is that promised Messiah for the people of Israel. The kingdom of God coming near has been declared. As we go on through Matthew chapter 21, we find Jesus cleansing the temple, driving out the moneylenders, saying, this is not what the temple is about. This is a house of prayer. You have made it to a den of thieves. And then we have a story which we've mentioned earlier this summer in which Jesus finds a fig tree that is filled with beautiful leaves but has no fruit. And so he curses the fig tree and it withers on the spot. What's happening here in this chapter is that the declaration that Jesus is the promised one of God. God is bringing about the fulfillment of the prophecies. But the people of God who are to receive the Messiah are only going through the motions. They're focused on things that have nothing to do with the Messiah and the kingdom of God. There is no fruit Following this parable in 20, verses 28 and 30, there's a second parable about a vineyard and tenants in the vineyard who are to, uh, to give the rent to the owner, the fruits of the labor of the vineyard, and they refuse to do that. And in that parable also foretells his own death at the hands of those who ought to be acknowledging his messiahship. What do you think? He asks. Which of these two sons, he says to the religious leaders, which of these two, the one who says no, but then goes and does what is asked of him, or the one who says yes, but then doesn't go, which one of these actually does the will of the Father? Well, we find in verse uh, 31, oh, sorry, yeah, verse 31, he says, which of these two do the will of the Father? And they are smart. They figured it out. They got the right answer. They said, well, the first one, even though he said no, he, he actually went and did what he was asked afterwards. So yeah, son number one is doing the will of the Father. So, to help us understand what Jesus is saying here and doing, it's helpful for us to think about what Jesus is identifying as who are these sons and what is the work that they are supposed to be doing. So who are the sons in this parable? Well, as we've seen in the context of Matthew 21, the sons are the family of God. 
And in that context that Jesus was speaking, that would have been the Israelites, the chosen people of God. And so he goes to the people of God and says, will you do what I ask of you? Will you do this work? And you have a child of God, a son of Abraham, as they would have been known, who says, no. I don't think I'm going to do all this temple stuff, all of these laws, because, you know, they had the religious laws of Moses that they followed as a sign of their faithfulness to God. There are 613 of those laws. And there were people in Israel, believe it or not, that didn't keep all of those laws. In fact, there were those that just didn't even participate in the life of the people of God. Jesus names a few of them, tax collectors, prostitutes, and other sinners. We know who they are. They're the ones that have turned their back on what God asks of us, what the will of God is, and the kingdom of God. These are the ones who do not follow the laws of Moses. And who's the other son? The son who says yes, but then doesn't go. Well, those are the ones who live by the law, the priests especially, and the Pharisees who take the word of God so seriously. So then the question is, what is the work that is being asked of them in this parable? Why is it that the religious leaders who follow the laws so carefully and so closely, why is Jesus naming them as the disobedient sons. Well, you see, what Jesus is getting at here is that their understanding of the work of the kingdom of God was not exactly what God intended. They saw their work as knowing the law, keeping the law, and even more importantly, enforcing the law on those around them. It was all about the law, and they were doing that to the utmost. They were experts in the law. But Jesus, in this story, is pushing them to consider that the work of the kingdom of God and the will of the Father is something more than the law itself. That's where in this context of this story that we read today, we hear about John the Baptist. Now Jesus says, look, before we talk about my ministry and what I'm calling you to and what I'm saying and all, let's talk about John the Baptist and what he did. What was the work that John the Baptist was calling the people of Israel to? Well, in Matthew chapter 3, we find a description of what... uh, Uh, John the Baptist was doing. In John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 and verse 6, we read this. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of God is come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And it goes on to say, When the people heard him, they repented and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
Matthew 21, verse 45, reinforces this understanding of the priests and the religious leaders as being pretty smart. They know what's up. 21, verse 45 says this, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized he was talking about them. What Jesus is saying about these religious leaders is that they aren't doing the work that they have been called to do by God. The work of the kingdom is the work of repentance, the work of confession, and to prepare for the kingdom of God to enter fully into the world that we inhabit. These religious leaders were to call the people to relationship with God as Lord and King. That God would rule in the hearts of the people, not be the giver of rules for the people. It's a forest in the trees kind of situation. Are you familiar with that, that phrase? You can't see the forest for the trees? The idea here in that kind of idiom is that that you are so focused on the tree right in front of you and trying to describe the tree and its branches and the leaves and the bark, you, you completely miss the fact that the tree is part of something much bigger and much more important than the tree itself, the forest. Jesus is saying to these religious leaders, you've missed the point of all these laws and rules. These laws and rules are about ordering our lives in such a way that we are in intimate relationship with our king and our God and the kingdom of God that is coming and the Messiah that he is sending to be with us and to save us and to lead us into his kingdom. You've missed it. You've missed it. And so in 21, verse 31, Jesus says to them, really directly, truly I tell you, you religious rule followers, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners are going into the kingdom ahead of you. They're going into the kingdom ahead of you You're the experts. But the ones who've been outsiders are now going in first. And why is that? It's because when John proclaimed that message of repentance and said, hey, God is doing what he promised he would do. He's sending a Messiah. He's going to be with us. He's going to bring about this kingdom life. Our hearts need to be right. The people heard it. And the people said, you're right. We've turned our eyes away from God. We've turned our lives away from God. We repent and they stepped into that river Jordan and were baptized to be cleansed and renewed in their relationship with God. But the religious leaders stepped back and had their arms crossed and said, who is this guy anyway? How does he think he can do this? And now they're doing the same thing with Jesus. The one who is the Messiah bringing the kingdom of God. Truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. So we're left always with the application question. How do we take this story 
and Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders and apply it and understand it for our own lives today. There's a couple ways for us to consider this. One is simply this question of who do we identify with in this story? Do we see ourselves in the in the character of the religious leaders, those who knew the law, those who loved the law, and they carried out the law, and they enforced the law for others? Or do we see ourselves together with the tax collectors and the sinners who recognize their need for God's love and mercy and forgiveness in our lives? Are we walking in relationship with our God? Or are we just living out the appearance of it in our lives and missing the whole point of what God is calling us to in Jesus Christ? In the New Testament, in the book of James, there's a phrase that the writer uses to talk about those who live this way where their faith is an outward expression but is not an inner reality, where there's a disconnect between what they say and what they look like they do and what's going on in their hearts. He calls those people double-minded. And the question that we need to ask ourselves in this parable is this. Are we simply saying, yeah, 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 to God? Or are we actually doing the kingdom work that we are called to do. There's a book called The Anabaptist Essentials, which describes one way of thinking about our faith as, a, as Mennonites in this stream of our theolo- theological history. And it says that Jesus is the center of our lives and our faith. Jesus is at the center, and we can all agree about that. And then it says that community, the life of the people of God, is the center of the way that we live. And then it goes on to say that the third essential part of our faith is this, that the work that we do is the work of reconciliation, of being reconciled ourselves to God and reconciling with one another because of God's reconciling mercy with us. James says this in chapter 4 of his, gospel, of, of his book, his letter to the people of the God. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. God is faithful and just. And whenever we turn to him and recognize that we are those sinners in need of a relationship with God, and we enter into that work of repentance, confession, and reconciliation with God, we are the children of God who are doing the work of God in this world. That is what we are called to. 
May that be our understanding as we live in faith and follow Jesus Christ in all that we do. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, in this story from Jesus, we are presented with this choice. There, are, there is the son that says no and has turned away from the will of the father, but then turns back and does the will of the father. And then there's the son that says, yes, of course, I'll do what you want me to. But then his heart turns away and he does his own thing. Lord, help us in your mercy and your grace to choose the will of the Father. Help us, Lord, to see us, ourselves, as we truly are before you, in need of forgiveness, so that we can walk in relationship with you, in tandem with the kingdom of God, and serve you in all that we are and all that we do. We pray this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.